The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So just as a preface to everything that uh, is going to be included in this series, I just want to lead with this. About a month ago, uh, myself and uh, two other people from council were able to attend a two-day training event called Wayfinders with, alongside about uh, 200 other uh, Christian educators. And uh, this uh, training called Wayfinders was put on by an organization based out of Grand Rapids called the Colossian Forum. And it's all about Christian conflict transformation. So most of what this series is compiled of is this training that we received put into a sermon form. So uh, just, just to lead with that, that this is, this is based on that, uh, that training. This is a way that council wanted to communicate what we learned with the rest of the congregation. And so we begin by looking at an overview of Christian conflict transformation. Washing dishes. It's amazing how small and insignificant conflict can be. As I fill up the sink with soap and hot water, I always, always, always rinse the soap suds off of the dishes before putting them in the drying rack. It's amazing that not everybody thinks the same way I do. That became clear when Tracy and I got married. As I've been preparing for this series, I thought about instances that... uh, we experience conflict in our lives. Conflict comes in all shapes and in all sizes. Whether it's a small disagreement between you and your friends or, or, or a bigger problem between a, a friend or a spouse or in your workplace or your church or your school, we experience conflict in our lives. If you're a human being, you've experienced it too. And so as we look out on this seven-week series I want to start with just a bit of an overview. What are the different types of problems that cause conflict in our lives? Well, sociologists talk about two main problems that we experience. There are tame problems and wicked problems. Now, I should mention that there's, there should be, I haven't taken a look at it, but in your bulletin, there should be a, a, a sermon notes handout that you can use to follow along and, and create some notes if you want to. Two different problems. There are tame problems and wicked problems. Tame problems are the ones that have a clearly defined goal or outcome. They may be complex. They may be really, really difficult and tough. But there is one goal, one conclusion that is to be discovered. This is like what your grade 10 math teacher says. That's a tame problem. They're always right. A wicked problem is different than that. Don't think of it so much as an evil problem, but that these are problems that don't have a clear goal, or that the goal changes depending on who you talk to. Wicked problems are like the conversations you have at school or or at home around poverty, 
around environmental stewardship, around sexuality and gender identity, around racism, around affordable housing. These are wicked problems, not because they're evil, but because the goal, the outcome, the desired conclusion changes based upon who you talk to. Because of this, wicked problems are often the ones that tear at the fabric of our relationships. Wicked problems are the ones that divide us. Wicked problems are the ones that challenge us, that we feel caught in. It matters a great deal how we navigate wicked problems because the quality of our lives is impacted by how we handle them. Our relationships are impacted by how we navigate wicked problems. How many of us have experienced conflict and it has resulted in a broken or fragmented relationship because of the way that we navigated it? And because of this, it matters whether you're a Bible-believing Christian or whether you don't care about Jesus. It matters greatly how we walk through the problems that cause conflict in our lives. Our very livelihoods are impacted by how we do this. As Christians, even in the midst of the most challenging conflict, we are called to view it through a different lens. As Christians, we're not supposed to manage conflict. As Christians, we're not supposed to avoid conflict. As Christians, we are to transform conflict. Because, G- because of Jesus and his grace, we are actually given the resources to do this and to do this well. And in this passage, we're given an example of what that looks like. How does Jesus approach conflict? Because Jesus, in this passage that Deanie read for us in in John 8, Jesus is given a wicked problem. And he moves through this problem in a way that transforms the conflict into a a way of, of, of spiritual and relational growth. It is an opportunity. And how Jesus does this is a great learning opportunity for us too. So we'll learn three things from this text that Jesus does when faced with conflict. We'll look at how Jesus redefines or changes the goal of conflict, how he upholds the pursuit of truth, and how he upholds the pursuit or the practice of of radical love. But before we dive into these three points, I just want to just want to mention briefly, you may have some alarm bells going off in your, in your brain right now because you notice that John 8 has, a, has an asterisk around it. There's something at the top that says, warning, warning, this is not part of the original manuscripts. What do we do with that? Well, just, to, just to not dive into all the, the church history around this or what all the scholars say about this, but just briefly, um, yes, that's true. This was not part of the original manuscripts of the Gospel of John. And it is in all likelihood, most scholars are in definite agreement on this, that John didn't actually write what is included in this section of his gospel. And yet, there is almost no disagreement among any Bible scholar, Christian or non-Christian, as to whether or not we can trust that this actually happened. It's pretty much unanimous. Most people actually think that it probably belongs in Luke, that it was probably Luke that wrote it. Some say it was Matthew. All people say it's Jesus. 
And so we can rest in that. This happened. The second thing I want to say before we dive in. A lot of us get anxious when conflict comes up, especially in the church. And this is especially relevant for us in this moment. As Darren prayed about, we, we, many of us in this room know that, that synod is going to convene. It has already convened. And one of the things on the agenda is the Human Sexuality Report. We wonder how this will impact the church. What does the Bible say? Some of us may worry that the church will fall apart. As if we are the ones holding it together. But let us just remember the words that Paul wrote in Colossians 1.17, where he says that he, Christ, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. If our hope at First Hamilton CRC is that we can hold this church together through good conversation, through listening to each other, through whatever, then we're already out of it. We've already lost. It is not us who holds this together. It is Christ who is holding all things together. And look at this text. Look at how Jesus responds to conflict. He's doodling in the sand. He's as cool as a cucumber. Conflict doesn't cause anxiety for Jesus. It doesn't have to cause anxiety for us. Christ is already holding all things together. And he will continue to hold all things together. Can we trust that he will do this? And can we move through conflict well? So point one. Jesus changes the goal. Whenever we engage in conflict, we have a goal in mind. What is the end goal of this? What are we hoping will happen? For some of us, it may be to just end the conflict right away by whatever means possible and get on with life. Others of us, it might be to fight, to persuade, to win people over until the day that I die. Everyone probably has different goals to conflict. The Pharisees and teachers of the law had a goal in their conflict. The text tells us in verses 3 to 6, it says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now that's the key to us, that they were using this as a trap to say that the goal of their conflict isn't actually really located in this text. The goal was to accuse Jesus. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to have something against Jesus. And so as we locate this story in the context of the rest of the story of John, we recognize that, that they saw Jesus as a threat to the, to the Jewish faith. Religious leaders, their job was to protect the faith, to live out righteousness and holiness as they saw it, and Jesus was, was, a, was an infiltrator into that, and they needed to get rid of him. And to do this, they set him up in a really, 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 really ingenious trap. Why is it such a good trap? Well, by the law given to Moses, the right. A woman caught in the act of adultery, according to Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 10, is the death penalty. Just like that. 
They're to be stoned. It's right there in the Old Testament text. Any rabbi worth their weight would know this. And so, if Jesus would say to those questioning him, no, 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 don't stone her, don't stone her, we are to forgive her, extend her grace, to love her, then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would say to him, aha, I knew it, we knew it, you don't care about the law of Moses, you just want to love people. The Old Testament law says so clearly, you can't be from God. But, on the other hand, if Jesus was to say to them, yes, she should be stoned, then they would respond, aha, and you say to people, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Come to me, and I will have you executed. Do you see? They've trapped him. What's it going to be, Jesus? Truth or love? But here's the irony of the conflict. Their goal, to trap Jesus, to get rid of Jesus, to protect the faith that they actually abandon the very thing they were trying to protect. The Jewish faith is one of holiness and righteousness. Right? The greatest commandment to love God, the second to love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, in order to get rid of Jesus, they throw a woman, an image bearer of God, as collateral damage in the process. They actually, in order to embrace truth and pursue truth, they actually embrace fallacy and falseness. And we'll get to that in a second. Their goal is way off. In the religious leaders, I'm reminded of myself. I look back in the times of my own life when I've wanted to be right so badly that I've harmed people in the process. I've stopped listening, stopped loving, and simply pursued truth, what I thought was truth. Other times, I've wanted the conflict to end just so I could get along with the relationship, and so I've abandoned my conviction in order to continue the relationship. We can all think of times in our lives when we strayed on either of these sides. When we do this, we have the wrong goal. Our goal should not be simply to pursue truth or simply to pursue love. Our goal should be to follow Jesus because he is already holding all things together. And instead of trying to end the conflict, we can redefine the goal. We can seek to follow him. See, notice that this is what Jesus does. He doesn't get his back up against the wall and play the same game that the religious leaders are doing. He doesn't go toe-to-toe -to, -toe to them in the ins and outs of the Mosaic law. He doesn't ask questions about the witnesses that aren't there as a way of proving that they're wrong. He doesn't bite back, but he also doesn't give in. He takes a different approach. And that's what we're going to look at through the next two points. Because Jesus upholds the pursuit of truth. What is so fascinating about this story is how Jesus moves past the letter of the law and gets at the heart of the law, almost seamlessly. Notice that 
Jesus never questions whether or not the woman was or was not caught in adultery. That she should be stoned. He never questions it. He knows that that's true. When he says, though, let any one of you who is without sin cast the first stone, he's actually not just spouting out from his own brain, he's quoting the law back to them. D.A. Carson is a leading Bible scholar, and he, he mentions this in his commentary. He says that Jesus does not mean that the authorities must be of sinless perfection before the death sentence can properly be vetted out. He doesn't even mean that a person should be free from lust before one can legitimately condemn adultery. It means that they must not be guilty of that particular sin. And this is true. In the Mosaic law, you couldn't stone a person if you were guilty of the same sin that they're being condemned for. Jesus knows his audience. Notice that the older men are the ones that leave first. But more than that, the law also says that in order for a person to be condemned, they have to actually be caught in the act. This is when, when a lot of people look at this, they say, this is very harsh, right? If, you know, being caught in adultery, just stone. But a, according to the Talmud, which is a, another Jewish writing, a, 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 court, a Jewish court that condemned more than two people every five years was considered to be a slaughterhouse. So the very fact that this is being brought to, to Jesus as a case that he is to decide is a really strange thing. It doesn't happen often. And, and the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're, they're taking a risk. The law says that nothing can be up to the imagination, that they have to be caught in the very act of adultery, not just leaving the house together. If there is, if that is not the case, and if there are not witnesses of such thing, then the people who are accusing, who are giving false witness, are to be stoned to death themselves. That's how serious this is taken. And so Jesus is looking out at these religious leaders, and he asks the question without asking it, where's the man? Where is the man? We know it takes two to tango, so where is the man? What is Jesus doing? He's playing the law back to the religious leaders, not by arguing, but by looking beyond the law at the heart of the law. That all sin and fall short of the glory of God. He's humbling them or inviting them to be humbled. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is that we can't actually really pursue truth when we are in our own egos, when we're proud, when we think we've got it all. We have to see that our biggest problem in the pursuit of truth is not not knowing enough. It's not not reading the Bible enough. It's not... Uh, anything like that. What Our biggest problem is our sin. Our sin blinds us. Our sin causes us to think that we are the ones who have it all together, that we have the right perspective on this, and that we know everything. Jesus is calling us out on that. 
In this way, he extends to the Pharisees and religious leaders an opportunity to repent, to humble themselves, to follow him. He offers them a way out, but they don't take it. How would this story change if the religious leaders humbled themselves before God, recognized blind spots, came ready to listen? When we engage in conflict transformation, humility is essential in pursuing and discerning truth together. Many of us, most of us, sitting in the pews, myself included, oftentimes think that I'm pretty humble. But just for fun, test yourself with these three questions. Okay, ask yourself, how do I receive criticism? It's a measuring stick for, for how, how proud are we? How do we receive criticism? I read about criticism years ago as I was preparing for ministry, and the folks said that in order to grow and flourish as a pastor, you have to really come to terms with criticism because it will come your way. In order to flourish in ministry, you have to be able to see and receive the truth in even the most absurd criticisms. Even the ones that are full of falsehood, you have to see that there is an ounce of truth. All criticism is a gift. Do we receive it as such? Why not? How do you take advice? How do you apply other people's advice to your lives? Do you? Why not? How does it make you feel receiving advice from people? Does it make you feel small, insignificant? Or do you value that other people can speak into your life? Lastly, how do you receive thanks? When somebody wants to thank you for something, how do you receive it? Do you duck away before you can get that affirmation? Why do you do that? Oftentimes, we will duck out of, of thanks because we, we actually want to live in the fact longer that, that we have pleased people. Humility is an essential ingredient in pursuing truth. The third thing, the third point is that Jesus upholds practicing radical love. Although Jesus pursues truth, that doesn't mean that he abandons radical love. See, Jesus is unlike anyone else in the world. He can hold these two together. When Jesus finally gets around to addressing the woman caught in adultery, he knows that the woman is guilty. Notice that, hey? And we'll get to that in a second, a little bit more. But he knows that she's guilty, and he even refers to her with the most gracious and respectful address in the Greek language towards another woman. This is the tone that you would talk to your grandma or oma with. That's how Jesus responds to this woman. He refuses to give in to the temptation of minimizing this woman to be a whore or an adulteress, or a sinner, as would 98.5% of the other population in the Jewish culture. He calls her woman. Woman. And he doesn't leave it there. He continues, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She responds, no one, sir. Then Jesus says to her, then neither do I condemn you. 
Go now and leave your life of sin. So when the dust settles and, and everyone has left and Jesus and the woman are left together, the woman knows she did it, that she's guilty. Jesus knows that she's guilty. She did it. But she's not condemned. This week, Tracy and I watched a movie uh, called The Guardian. It's an, I'll say it, it's an oldie but a goodie. I feel like it was the early 2000s. But it's, it's a movie about Coast Guard swimmers. And at one point in the movie, they tell a story about one Coast Guard swimmer who rescued a, another swimmer uh, from uh, a shipwreck. And it was cold, but the, on the way up to the helicopter, the winch broke. And so this, this rescue swimmer had to hold on to this this uh, victim with his, with his hand. And he said, I'm not letting go. Right? And so 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes later, they get back to shore. And in the meantime, this Coast Guard swimmer's shoulder was dislocated, and every single ligament and tendon and whatever is left in, in your shoulder was just ripped to shreds, but he didn't let go. This is what Jesus does with grace or with love and truth. This is how he welds them together. He refuses to let go. And this is one instance where he upholds truth, right? But he also practices radical love. He calls the religious leaders to the truth of the law, but he extends grace to the, to the woman caught in adultery. How can he do this? How can Jesus do this? Well, it's because he went to the cross. In fact, the, the cross is the only way that truth and love can be held together. If Jesus had simply pursued truth in his life, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. He would have just called down fire from heaven and we'd all be burned. <laughs> We're all guilty. If the truth of Christ was the only thing that existed, we'd all be doomed. But if Jesus had just pursued love, then he could have just winked away our sin. It wouldn't have mattered. It would have just been done. I mean, he has the power to forgive sins. We know that from the gospel. So, so why couldn't he just wink away our sin? The cross proves the cost of grace and truth. Or sorry, of, of truth and love. Because of our sin, because of Jesus' commitment to truth, he had to go to the cross. But because of his commitment to love, he willingly went there. And he died for us. The truth demanded it. The love endured it. And so as we engage conflict, and see conflict transformed, as we seek to follow Jesus as our goal, moving through wicked problems in our lives. In Christ, we too can hold love and truth together. We can humbly pursue truth and at the same time practice radical, generous love. In fact, that's what we're called to do. That's what following Jesus means.
as we enter into conflict in our lives, let's do that. Let's seek to follow Jesus. Let's pursue truth and humility, and let's love others radically. And remember, Christ holds all things together. Let's pray. Father, what would we do without Jesus? What would we do without the cross? We would be hopeless. We would be lost. And yet, we have, we have a way, the way, the way, the truth, and the life through him. Give us the strength and the courage to follow Jesus, even in the most difficult conflict in our lives. Give us your Holy Spirit that helps us embody Christ in the ways that we talk with each other, in the relationships that we have with one another. God, we want to be a community that is a witness to the world of what it looks like to move through conflict well. What a witness that would be in a world that's so polarized, that's so fragmented. We want to be a church that lives out a different reality. We need your spirit. We need grace. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.